There is little doubt, to be honest, that the Christian gospel has been the most powerful force in the history of the world. Some people hate that, they, they uh, um, dislike it. Some people like to dwell on the um, enormous variety of monstrous aberrations that it spawned. The gospel has been distorted, it's been used to justify terrible things like the Crusades or pogroms against the Jews or apartheid. But actually, thousands upon thousands of serious uh, historians from all sorts of backgrounds agree. The Christian gospel has done more to shape the world than anything else in history. The Roman Empire was tamed by it Medieval Europe was liberated from feudalism by it. Atrocious abuses of modern empire were undermined by it. Humanitarian efforts have been inspired by it and millions upon millions of people have been made unstoppably happy by it. The gospel is a world-taming truth. And it is world-taming precisely because it is people-transforming. It changes ordinary people like us. It transformed a a Northamptonshire cobbler into the father of the modern missionary movement, William Carey. It transformed a Bedfordshire tinker into uh, the most famous Christian author in history, perhaps, John Bunyan. It transformed a sickly, lazy, gambling, drunken, young Oxbridge graduate, not today, but 200, uh, um, or or, or, um, uh, a little more than a, yeah, 200 years ago, into a man who by his perseverance ended slavery. William Wilberforce. It changes people. In every century, it has liberated millions of people from their narrow, miserable, self-serving, pointless lives into joyful, sacrificial, passionate, full lives. The gospel is the most extraordinarily powerful force in history. But actually, right from the beginning... It has a tendency to dribble through people's fingers and out of their hands. Individuals sometimes, whole churches at other times, somehow lose their grip on the gospel. They lose its life-transforming power. I saw a, I saw a, um, a T-shirt this week which said, Only dead fish go with the flow. And this morning we're going to see that the church in Corinth was a very dead fish. This morning we're going to try to learn how to swim against the tide. Last uh, week we um, began looking at uh, this letter to the Corinthians after almost a year away from it. And we had to remind ourselves last week that chapters 1 to 3 that we looked at a year ago showed this church as divided, as celebrity-obsessed, completely, in fact, surrendered to the, uh, the, the honour 
and fame-oriented society of the city of Corinth that it lived in. In chapter 4, Paul began to draw together the strands of what he'd been talking about in chapters 1 to 3 um, and to show them how they could live lives which were not dominated by the culture around them. How they could resist the vicious undertow of that culture. How they could swim against the tide. Last week we, saw, we, we, we asked how they could, how they could uh, avoid being ruled by that, that insidious and difficult feeling of unease that is called by many shame and that rules so many people and makes them uh, desperately and fruitlessly seek to be, to be honoured by others in order to cover up that feeling. We looked at various aspects of Paul's sense of self-confidence so he could stand against the opinions of his culture and the opinions of others. For God, we focus particularly on him having a good conscience. You can hear that in last week's sermon. But um, there was another vital ingredient in Paul's sense of freedom, in Paul's ability to live against the flow, to live differently for Christ. It's actually alluded to in chapter 4, but it's not spelled out in any detail. In order to understand chapter 4, though, we do need to spell it out in a bit of detail before we come back to chapter 4. Paul uh, speaks of it uh, at length in 1 Corinthians 15, 11 uh, chapters further on. But here we need to recognise that vital to Paul's sense of being able to live for God was his confidence in the future. He lives as a free man in this world because he's confident about the next. There's an old uh, um, saying that Christians can be too heavenly minded to be any, usely, uh, any earthly uh, use. And it's absolutely and utterly false. Again and again and again we find the most heavenly minded Christians are the most earthly youths because they are able to live powerfully for God on this earth. What is that future that Paul looks forward to with such confidence then? 1 Corinthians 15 sets it out, the New Testament um, outlines it even more fully. We considered it just a couple of weeks ago and in many ways I'm just going to remind you for a few minutes to what the New Testament says. Our future hope is resurrection hope. Jesus bodily rose from the grave and he promises us that we will too. The risen Jesus could be touched. He ate fish. He, he was recognisably human. And he said, you too can enjoy that future physicality of being loved. Uh, are being alive with resurrection life not now marred by death if you love this life 
You'll, if you like this life, you'll love resurrection life. Our future hope, um, says the New Testament, is of a new physical earth. It seems with plants and animals and rivers and buildings, it will be radically different in many ways. Pro- the prophets used fantastic language to try to describe it, such as lions eating straw or children's playing with cobras or, a, or a, in Revelation a tree which straddles a great river. But they carefully don't say that the future world is a place where lions and lambs and trees are abolished. Rather, they seem to be transformed. The Apostle Paul puts it uh, like this in Romans 8, verse 21. The creation itself, he says, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. If you like this wonderful, solid, physical earth, you'll love the new creation. Our future hope uh, says that says uh, the New Testament is of renewed human community, people of every tribe and nation brought, being brought into this new creation. Uh, into this new creation, the one-to-one intimacy of marriage will be banished, but only because the joy and openness and love and mutual giving, which is found just occasionally in a pure form in marriages for short moments will in the new creation be expanded to our relationships with all people at all times forever. And more than anything else, that new future that we look forward to beyond death will be a future of eternal perfect relationship with God. That's everywhere, the, 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 the focus of that new hope. Look at how Isaiah puts it, for instance, in uh, Isaiah chapter 11. The earth, he says, will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The sea is waters, isn't it? They are coextensive. And so will our knowledge of God be with life. It will not be possible to separate them. Everything that we do, every thought that we think, every person that we greet, every moment of our existence will be saturated with the knowledge of the love of God. For most Christians there are just occasional moments of this, rare and precious moments perhaps, in public worship when we feel intimately loved by God and caught up in delighting him, in him or occasional moments in private prayer when we, are, when we are touched by the heart of God and we feel ourselves engulfed in that sort of immense eternal joy. But actually, those are little hints, those are little tastes. Our eternal future, says the Bible, our resurrection life, that will be our experience all the time, in everything that we do, forever. And unlike our present existence, in which those rare moments actually transfix us and immobilise us, now in the future, it will just be normal. As we eat and drink and laugh and greet people and 
enjoy that purified and glorified new world that God has made. All the time filled with praise for God our Creator, for Jesus who died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we could enjoy God forever. And it will continue and grow forever and ever and ever. That is what the New Testament promises us. That is what it sets before us. No wonder the disciples couldn't believe it for joy to start with. It is absolutely extraordinary. But you see, what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 4, we must remember, we must remember, it is not yet. That's what these Corinthians have failed to grasp, you see. At least some of them. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. I wish you already had become kings so that we might be kings with you. We know from 1 Corinthians 15 they'd lost confidence in that glorious future that the New Testament sets before God's people and so what they had done is they had tried to focus on some immediate approximation to it now. They tried to maximise their pleasure now. They tried to preach that uh, all of God's blessings come now. They had twisted the gospel message, you see, which is about future hope, into something which was only about present enjoyment. And there is present joy in being a Christian. There are tastes of the eternal future. There is, more than anything else, a deep joy that comes from knowing that eternal future is secure if we have put our trust in Christ. But the New Testament tells us again and again and again we are not there yet. And Paul uses the most extraordinarily vivid imagery to get, to, to get that across in verse 9. It seems to me, says Paul, that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe to angels as well as men. When Roman emperors won a great victory, they would triumphantly process back into Rome, usually. And the emperor would be in front, and then he would be followed by his, uh, his heroic soldiers, and then finally there would be a raggle-taggle group of miserable prisoners of war. And in those days there was no Geneva Convention. Those prisoners of war were being brought home for a one purpose and one purpose only. The entertainment, the cruel entertainment of the population. They would be put in the arena. They would be killed by gladiators or lions or burned alive. Corinthians knew that. That's us. That's us apostles, says Paul. 
If he'd wanted to, Paul could have used other imagery, couldn't he? Jesus did. Anyone who would come after me must take up his cross and follow me, he said. Jesus went to glory not on a throne, but on a cross. To a greater or lesser extent, everyone will have to follow him. See, doesn't that massively, massively affect your expectations about this world? But you see, when we get it right, it sets us free. The Corinthians were desperately trying to redefine the gospel that they believed in to make it a recipe for success and honour and a good life in this world and both Paul and Jesus before him had used the most vivid imagery to try and wrench their hearts away from that pathetic, futile, miserable, ultimately disappointing vision of life that is only about honour here and to fix our hearts on where there is true joy on eternity. For some of us that will mean having to endure real, real suffering. The agony of disappointment, the many, many trials that come on us in this world. For the Corinthians, it meant having to liberate themselves from the adulation of this world. Because the Corinthians, frankly, they were dead fish. They were floating down with the flow of that city. And they needed this massive jolt of electricity to get their hearts pumping again and to start them swimming against the flow. They needed to accept their current status. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless, he says, with the most biting irony. The Gospel is the greatest wisdom that has ever um, been revealed in this world. I believe that. The Apostle Paul believed it too. But it will always be considered foolishness by the world. If you believe the Gospel, large chunks of the population of the world will think you're an idiot. The Gospel will always be considered to be a message for the weak, a crutch to lean on, a message for those who are too inadequate to deal with their own problems. The church going for so many men is just an activity for women and um, rather wimpy effeminate men. That is false. But people will always say that. A few lucky Christians may find that they are honoured because of their faith because there are good people in the world who recognise 
the goodness of the gospel, even outside the Christian church. But most people will find the opposite. They will be, one way or another, dishonoured. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonoured. I hear from men, you know, particularly the adage that uh, Christians are often labelled foolish, weak and um, are dishonoured because they are. It's very true. Sometimes we can easily live up to those uh, stereotypes and there is no particular merit in that. But I ask myself, why do I hear that from men? Is it because we men in particular are actually frightened, actually ashamed of accepting the inevitability of those labels? that we must actually be man enough to wear in this world. Because Jesus did. Which brings me to the heart of what I want to say to you this morning. I want to say this clearly and as forcefully as I can. Many of us here, particularly, are, are young and, and many of us, frankly, are pretty able. In our lives, we will be able to gain a wisdom, or a reputation of wisdom and of strength. And no little honour, many of us. And I want to say, if your primary appetite is for that, you will be useless for Christ. Those who live their lives for those things, though they may be found in churches today, they're frankly unlikely to be there tomorrow. And on the last day, they risk Christ saying, away from me, I never knew you. Some of, some of you here may rise or may have already, already risen relatively high in this world and I, I hope there are lots of us who will. If God has gifted you for that, if God has called you to that, then God has given you a noble calling in this world. But make sure the praise and honour that you will earn, perhaps, in your life. is not the focus of your life. Make sure the praise and honour of Christ and the infinite reward of resurrection life is the centre of your heart. One of the greatest Christian leaders of the 20th century, I think John Stott, who has is enormously adulated by many. He was asked how he dealt with all that adulation and respect that uh, people gave him. And he said, I don't inhale. 
We need to learn what that means. Learn it now. As you receive small bits of honour that come to you, exhale, don't inhale. Don't become addicted to the nicotine of the world's praise. And frankly, there are others of you here who could rise high in this world, but that is not God's purpose for you. Perhaps he, perhaps he actually wants you to be in church leadership. Perhaps he wants you to use your skills in some more unglamorous role. Perhaps overseas. Perhaps amongst the poor. Perhaps he wants you to go to, to live in a, in a relatively untrendy place and go to an untrendy church and desert, devote yourself to untrendy people all of your life. Uh, you probably don't know right now what God wants you for the rest of your uh, life. But let me tell you, you will not be able to see it if your eyes are constantly dazzled by the lights of this world. Learn to wear sunglasses when you're looking at the lights of this world. So that you can see beyond to what your Heavenly Father really wants you to give your life to. And you know, all of us are called to go public with our faith. Are you prepared to be labelled as the weirdo in the office, as the loser in college, as the party pooper, as the, the nice but slightly pathetic old person who clings to church going when the rest of the world knows better and has moved on? And will you find it in your soul when you meet those attitudes to respond with magnanimity and grace. Look at, look at what Paul says in verse uh, 12 there. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. There is such a pressure in us, isn't there? To give as good as we get. If we can't avoid the per- curses, curses and Curses and persecution, well, at least we'll, we'll give something back with interest. And Paul finds the ability not to do that. Why? Because he is nourished by this sober expectation of what he can expect to see in this life and a bright and glorious vision for what God has prepared him in the next. And that'll keep you going. That'll enable love to spring up in your heart for people who deride you and oppose you. That'll enable you to bless others and to endure and to be patient. Salmon do 
incredible things to get to their spawning grounds. The source of a river. They leap waterfalls. They brave predators. They seem driven by an inexorable force. They swim unstoppably against the flow. Why? Because built into them somewhere is an instinct that they know where they've got to go. They know what they've got to do. Their life will not be complete until they have got to that gravel bed up at the source of the river and they have spawned. And when they have completed that great task of their life, they die. I long to see us composed 100% of people who are like that. Now perhaps you, you, you are old, perhaps you know you are getting to the end of that, uh, the, the road. Well, there is still opportunity to exert yourself in love in Christian commitment, in, in, in grace. As you drive home towards the goal, which is your salvation. Perhaps you are young. And you can't imagine what it will mean to live all of your life Swimming against the tide, because you will have to. Well, the first thing is to get a healthy expectation of that necessity. And to combine it with a clear vision of where Jesus Christ is calling you. And once that's inside your head, you will leap waterfalls. You will brave predators. You will keep going. You will find that though outwardly we are wasting away, as the Apostle Paul puts it, inwardly we are being renewed daily. And you will be able to live a life for Christ that makes a difference. Live the life that Christ has called you to do. Don't be a dead fish. Live. Yeah.